Welcome to the Veteran Founder Podcast on the Startup Radio Network. Starting a company allows you to be back in control. The weekly show that brings together military spouse and veteran founders who are doing remarkable things in the business world. I can't imagine there's anything out there stronger than the bond that military and veteran entrepreneurs have. We'll hear their story, the story of their business, and lessons learned. Joy can override the worries and depression. Here are your hosts, Cynthia Kale and Josh Carter. Welcome, everybody, to the Veteran Founder Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Carter. Uh, with me, as always, is Cynthia Kao. Cynthia, welcome. Hi, Josh. Happy summer. Happy summer. You know, it's funny. Uh, last few shows, we've been like, I think this is episode 102. I think this is episode. This is episode 103. Officially. So, officially. I checked the sheet. I don't, I've been lazy. I, Chelsea, our producer, is amazing. And I haven't been checking the sheet. I've been like going, oh, this is one of something. Hooray. Uh, like an idiot. Uh, <laughs> but we are officially, this is 103. So uh, if you are new to the podcast, welcome. We're really excited you're here. Every week we get to talk to these amazing founders who have one little extra thing on their resume, and that is service to our country. And this week we have a friend, fellow Navy vet, Ali Amadi from T-Care. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Oh, this my God. Awesome. I, first of all, it's been a while, and you've been on my list to get on because I've known you forever and known this company forever, so I'm excited to have you finally on the show. Well, it's finally good to get Josh's attention to be on your show. Oh, come on. I, <laughs> Ouch. Damn. Well, Elbow you know, I, I don't want to call anything out here, buddy, but if you read your emails, like, I mean, that's all you got to do. Uh, but yeah, you know, um, yeah, I, yeah, right. So, uh, but you know, I have the pleasure of knowing you pretty well, but my audience does it. So let's rewind the tape. Let's talk about your story. What led you to get into the Navy? Yeah. So, uh, um, let's see. I was, uh, I, I grew up in, uh, Queens, New York, um, was, uh, East coast born and raised. Yeah. Bayside Queens in, um, uh, you know, grew up with a with a pretty modest blue collar family. My father was a was a welder for the New York City subway system. Oh wow! And um, and uh, you know, September 9th, two thousand one, was my mom's fiftieth uh, birthday, and we were uh, having dinner on the top of the world restaurant on top of the Tower Two. Oh, you got to be kidding me! So. Uh, yeah, obviously we know what happened two days later, and then uh, uh, on September thirteenth, two thousand one, Governor Pataki came on the radio and asked for all craft labor craft labor unions to uh, to assemble at the at the Javits Center. So my dad and I uh, we 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 took our bike, got to the uh, Queensboro Fifty Ninth Street Bridge. And the bridges were all closed at that time. Into, into I was going to say, wasn't everything pretty much closed still? In yeah, 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 exactly. So we walked across the bridge, and anyway, we were able to get ourselves uh, to the Javits Center. And so my my father and I were part of the rescue team for for a good uh, ten days there. And uh, about two months later, I, I walked into the Brooklyn Navy Yard uh, Map Center and uh, wow, and lined up. Yeah. When you walked through the door and went to boot camp, I assume you went to Great Lakes like everybody else did. What shocked you or surprised you when you finally got there? 
Uh, first of all, I, I just just remembering the smell of boot camp was one of the things I never never smell uh, never never forget. Um, just the barracks, what it smelled like. Uh, I was extremely shocked by the uh, youth of the um, the you know recruits that were there. I joined when I was 21 years old, whereas everybody else was 17, 18. Same. Uh, yeah. Pretty pretty interesting to see that, and then just the uh, the uh, the geographical diversion from where everybody was was coming into the um, boot camp. It was fascinating to me when I got to boot camp. I had the same exact experience, and I'll tell you, but it was the opposite where I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area, so it was always really diverse. Like similar to you, you grew up in a very diverse market. And then when I got into Great Lakes, Illinois, I discovered people that had like, we had one gentleman, I'll never forget him. He was a great guy, but he was from like a really small town in Arkansas. And he had never seen like tall buildings taller than like two floors high. So every time we took him to Chicago on the train, it was like watching a little kid discover everything for the first time. It was just like, but that was the, the fun part of it too. Yeah. It's it's really Uh unique because I've I've met people that were in basic that never left their state. Right. Correct. Um, And they're like from Rhode Island or some tiny little state where you would think, hey, you've never been to Boston? I mean, (laughs) or New York. Right. Right. It's pretty incredible. I had buddies from South Dakota that I was the brownest person that ever met in their life before. Yeah. This guy was the whitest guy he'd ever seen. So, <laughs> so you're you're in. What did you hope to do when you got to the Navy? Like, what what did you want? What was your A school like? What did you want to do? Yeah. So so I went in as a as a uh, enlisted aviation electrician, and uh, and and um, my my goal was to be in a technical engineering role where it could um, my role would 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 kind of turn into some type of uh, engineering craft and skill afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, and my goal was also to, uh, while active, um, to finish my, my, my bachelor's degree mm. while, I was, while I was in. So um, I got to Pensacola Aviation Electrician School, and it uh, was a pretty cool, pretty cool um, stay there. I mean, we got wild on Pensacola Beach. Uh, as, as any sailor, uh, right out of boot camp would do. It's not, not a bad place to be. That's for yeah. sure. Yeah. Um, served with some really cool folks, uh, within, within my, uh, my A school. And then, you know, we were a team of, uh, 42, 42, uh, classmates in our, in our A school. And I came out on top, uh, first place in, in, in the, uh, in the scoring. And so, I had basically 42 choice of orders in front of me. Nice. Wow. So where did you end up? And um, at that time, I was pretty young, stupid, and dumb. So my only my only goal at that time was what's going to get me closer to home. Hmm. Uh, I chose uh, a set of orders in Pax River, Maryland, mm-hmm. uh, to uh, to fly um, autonomous systems. So I was flying different UAV, um, part of the R&D team of uh, flying different drone systems. Interesting. Interesting. Why did you want, why did you, because it sounded like when you got in, but what you ended up with was starkly different. Like, how is that going to get you to your goal by flying drones? Yeah. um, Looking back at it that week that I got the choice of orders, um, 
what what really influenced uh, my decision was I had I was notified that uh, my mother had uh, been diagnosed with a chronically ill disorder, mm. um, and so at that time the only thing that I remember was I just wanted whatever orders were closer to home yeah. so I could visit my mom before um, you know she anything got serious so. Um, it was different, but it actually, it, those orders did end up achieving the goal that I initially set out. Oh, wow. To do. Now, I didn't get to work on cool aircraft systems. Um, what I would have considered cool big aircraft systems. Um, but uh, I did get to be at the front lines of technology and and work on the next generation of, of autonomous systems in our yeah. countries. Yeah, for sure. The unmanned drones, you know, that was pretty new back then. There was not a lot of people that knew about them. It, it, it was so new that even the A school, the, the C school that we went through was not a separate track. Mm-hmm. Uh, so all the pilots, all the drone pilots still had to go through flight school. Oh, wow. They did not have at that time in 2001, 2002, they did not have in the Navy, there was not a separate UAV training um, school. So we went through flight school, we went through jump school, we went through pretty much everything just to fly, never, never leave the ground. Um, so yeah, it was, it was a brand new, brand new program, um, still was trying to find its legs. Um, we had a Marine sister squadron that uh, we were training with. So the Navy team was taking the, the, the drones from the defense contractor mm-hmm. Uh, putting it through all its uh, testing, getting its sea legs and certifications, and then handing it over to our Marine sister squadron that uh, would take it out in the field. Wow. Was Maryland your only duty station? Did you uh, did you go to other duty stations? Uh, no, I, I, I did do a, a stint of uh, some intel work up, uh, up in Virginia yeah. uh, while I was active duty, but... Um, no, Maryland became home pretty much throughout the whole process. And for people who don't know, that that's close to where I live, but that's a little tiny duty station. Mm-hmm. It's. <laughs> I mean, the it, commissary has just <laughs> your very basic. It's like a Seven Eleven kind of. You know, it's so small. Yeah, um, you know, Southern Maryland. Not people. Not many people know where it is. Um, they they think of Eastern Shore or. Uh, you know, uh, south of Annapolis, you could go down hour, hour and a half south and, and still be on the western shore of Maryland hmm. and get to a place where Solomon's Island. It's, it's a pretty small area. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. That Very is, remote. I, I was stationed in Pascagoula, Mississippi. So I might have you beat as the smallest <laughs> naval station. Although I will say we had uh, we had two piers. So maybe it was big, bigger. I don't I'm not sure. But uh, I, I do recall spending a lot of time going two hours either east or west because there was just nothing in Pascagoula, Mississippi. So um, when you transitioned out, what was the thought? Like what led you to, okay, now this is, this is I'm not going to reenlist. It's my time to get out. Yeah. So while I was active, I did get my aerospace engineering degree nice. at Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University. And so um, uh, right, right. A couple of months uh, before getting out, um, I was offered a, a internship at Navair 
the Department of Defense, the naval air, the 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 civilian side of of, of the Navy down in Orlando. Mm. And at that time, I was dating a girl in in Miami, so Orlando was the closest I could get there <laughs> to to uh, to get close to that girl I was dating, which is now my wife of seventeen years now. Wow! Oh wow! Um, so uh, so picked up those uh, that assignment. Went to the civilian side of Department of Defense at Nav Air in Orlando, and then I worked on the civilian side of evaluating uh, contracts, uh, evaluating UAV drone contracts for the Navy, hmm. um, and essentially became the liaison between the defense contractor and Nav Air. Nice, nice. And so when you started that, what about it shocked you or surprised? I'm going to go back to that. What surprised you about that process? Because you weren't in the military anymore. You were sort of like this civilian living in a quasi-hybrid. What what, what shocked you about that uh, experience? Yeah, um, you know, coming out of the military, especially when you join it, when you join the military very young and you haven't necessarily seen other things um, out in the real world, um, coming out of the military, it was... It, it, it's somewhat hard adjustment to see on the civilian side, especially working as a civilian government contractor, mm-hmm. uh, how lax um, um, work ethics are. Sure. And um, so that was that was one of the biggest shocks, and I think that's that's what had led me to to some of the uh, the eagerness that I had because. I was this civilian government contractor and, you know, coming out of the military, you're hungry, you're eager, you, mm-hmm. you want to excel, you want to go tear up the world and, and, you know, conquer the next big thing. And, and so I was very under, under underwhelmed there. I ended up going back to school while I was working full time, ended up getting my master's in aerospace engineering. Mm-hmm. And, um, that's when in Orlando, uh, Siemens, uh, Siemens uh, Engineering, the the nuclear division of Westinghouse that that Siemens had just bought, ended up recruiting me, and I became a international nuclear field engineer. Uh, basically, for eight years, traveling the world at different nuclear power plants uh, for Siemens, and uh, um, doing three to six month projects at a time at different nuclear sites. Wow! So my biggest shock was. I had the eagerness for growth. I had, I had this hunger inside me, um, in the civilian world, and it wasn't necessarily satisfying that. Hmm. So that eagerness eventually led you into starting your own company, or co-founding a company. Talk a little bit about the decision to kind of go out on your own and do your own thing. Yeah. Um, so I had pretty much hit my nuclear engineering ceiling uh, of being within the, the the large conglomerate that Siemens is and um, I uh, I was still hungry so I, I I looked at different MBA programs ended up coming to St. Louis Missouri for Washington University's executive MBA program um, came here and right right from the get-go of the MBA program um, I was intrigued on the entrepreneurial side and uh, knew I wanted to, to, to get started 
something um, on my own. So, um, you know, the, the biggest, the biggest hurdle that I had to overcome was removing the corporate leash that I had, which was the corporate paycheck mm-hmm. that I had from Siemens. Once, once you get comfortable not having that leash on you, everything then just started opening up and, and the world kind of became a big greenfield to conquer. So while uh, in business school, I ended up um, becoming the president of the Entrepreneurial Club at Washington University. I ended up becoming uh, a mentor in a bunch of different uh, startup accelerator programs and ended up actually investing in a few angel deals directly uh, myself. One of those angel deals I ended up getting uh, personally involved with as a COO. Uh, that one was a was a f- company that was that had uh, just deployed a Fitbit for dogs, hmm. and uh, so it was a pretty cool, pretty cool business model. Um, I only got to get the, that exposure for a year because uh, within a year it was it was acquired by a private equity firm out of London. And then I, that's another classmate that... of mine started our second company. Um, we uh, became a 3D modeling software for uh, images using drones, mm. uh, using uh, um, for specifically for the mining company. That um, uh, was was pretty cool uh, company that we co-founded together. I was able to leverage the military veteran community and. Uh, raise our seed seed financing round using leveraging that and got the company into a couple of cool accelerator programs. Um, I was going to say, I think that's about uh, the time that you and I met. Yeah, 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 exactly. You and I met at Patriot Bootcamp down in San Antonio. Yep. You were one of the mentors yeah. of our company. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember. That, that yeah, was yeah. pretty cool. So then so- after that company, um, uh, you know, I was talking to a... Uh, one of the tech stars mentors buddy of mine about how much my wife and I were struggling with dealing with my mother-in-law that had mm. stage four lymphoma cancer living with us, how much that challenge was, was with us. And uh, anyway, buddy of mine ended up uh, introducing me to a research team that his mom was, uh, was um, the, the lead researcher at that university. Uh, I'm going to give a shout out to Josh Montgomery um, he, uh, uh, that, which I also met at Patriot Bootcamp, the same event you and I met. Mm-hmm. Anyway, long story short, ended up uh, working with this research team out of the university, pulling this IP out of the university oh, wow. and start productizing what has now become T-Care. Mm. And so at T-Care, we are a, a software platform that's used by social workers, caseworkers, care managers at different uh, either government agencies or health Medicaid insurance uh, health plans that use our system to help family members that are taking care of their elder loved ones. And um, we, we prevent the burnout of the uh, family, that family member and essentially prevent the burnout, uh, prevent the placement of elders into nursing homes. Hmm. Essentially, that's our whole value proposition is prevention or delay of placement of elders into nursing homes. Let me ask you personally, because you mentioned breaking out of the leash of corporate. When you decided to kind of 
leave that, you know, it's almost like um, you're getting fed with the paycheck, right? It's stable. I, were you married at the time when you moved to Missouri and did your MBA? So yeah, you and you, you had family and then your mother-in-law got sick. So for the folks that are listening that are trying to break that leash, <laughs> they're working um, a regular job while trying to start a business. What would be your advice? Yeah, so th- this is the interesting part is, um, you know, w- when this question always comes up, the question I really get is, well, w- what's the risk, the opportunity cost if I quit this job and the the, the opportunity cost of, of not having a paycheck anymore? Um, you know, how to take that risk? And, and really, the answer to that question is, actually, the risk of you not quitting your job and doing something greater is far higher than you losing out on the paycheck. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the the biggest difference there was I was able to get comfortable being uncomfortable. And um and and my wife and I, I mean, we're we're very very supportive and my wife's a social worker, so, you know, not 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 necessarily a big money maker in the house, but uh, what we were able to do is is bring our, our living expenses to a bare minimum so that we can try a entrepreneurial journey. Mm-hmm. And um, the cost of not trying or not risking that was far higher than the actual risk of letting go of that leash. Yeah. And I've, I've been there where your wife was. I, I was a clinical social worker for 15 years and it's high burnout rate, high stress, and you're caring for your clients or your patients at a, at a rate where not only are you seeing family members struggling, but you know, you have to tackle policy and legislation and insurance and, you know, uh, working with a, a, a full care team that focuses on different things. So it's, it's kind of like coming around full circle, your personal journey along with your current company. And, you know, you left off talking about the con- the business concept of T-Care, but personally, what does that mean to you? Because you saw not only your wife in this industry, but also your mother-in-law going through her illness. Yeah, it was it was very interesting to me that with, with all the technologies out there, with all the resources that we have, with all the social services available in our country, uh, the, the family member that's taking care of that elder, the care of that family caregiver was being completely neglected. Mm-hmm. And everybody was asking the patient, how's the patient doing? But nobody was asking Hey Ali or hey Josh, how are you doing with the struggles of taking care of mom or dad that have dementia or cancer? You know, and and what what really struck me the aha moment was when it comes to the decision of on families on who's the actual decision maker to place a elder into an institutional facility. It's that son, the daughter, the sibling, the spouse that that's the decision maker, not the patient. So why is why isn't the system asking anybody how that family member is doing? And so that's essentially what we set out to solve. When you as you're going through this process of building the business, growing the business, how did you spend time figuring out who exactly your customer was? Cuz I got to think that there's sort of two sides to this. 
But how did you narrow what that customer was going to be? And then my second part to that is how did you find them? Yeah, yeah, very, very good question. That that customer, I mean, who we when we set out and started the business, who we thought the customer was, is very, very different than what it is today. You know, we we set out to to help families prevent nursing home costs, and we thought those family members, those sons, the daughters, those siblings, were going to be our customers, and. What we ended up finding out was when a when a son or daughter burns out and ends up putting mom or dad in a nursing home, there's really three buckets of money where um, the wallet of organizations are impacted. It's either the taxpayer, the state taxpayer that's paying for the nursing home cost of a Medicaid uh, member, which on the low income, lower income underserved side. Now the state ta- the state can outsource that to a managed care organization. These are large managed care insurers like Anthem, United Healthcare, Cigna, um, Mana, Blue Cross Blue Shields. These are large managed care organizations. Or the second bucket of money that's impacted is long term care insurance companies like life insurance companies. These are the Prudentials, the John Hancocks, the Genworths, the the Mutual of Omaha's of the world. Um, Or the third bucket is that family member themselves. They are now draining their 401k retirement savings Hmm. to pay for mom's nursing home costs. Yeah. So what we quickly found out and and, uh, knew was that we did not want to be a direct-to-consumer business model hmm. or a direct-to-consumer product. And so we ended up going directly head-on to the insurance companies that were the financial risk-bearing entities and saying, hey, guys, look at how we could delay nursing home placement and enable the elder to age in their own home longer. Hmm. And this, looking at the value chain, the, the elder, the senior wins. They don't want to be placed in a nursing home. Right. They're the winner. The family member, the son, the daughter doesn't want to place mom in a nursing home. So they win. The insurance company wins because they're delaying claims to pay for nursing homes. So it, it quickly became a win-win-win scenario. And so insurance companies were very receptive to this. Hmm. Amazingly enough, I mean, we have some very progressive clients right now, Anthem, United, Cigna, a handful of the Blue Cross Blue Shields that, you know, they are offering this as a benefit to their members. What do you think? What do you think are some of the blind spots to your business? Because like my first question in all of this is what would stop the insurance companies from doing this themselves? Right. Like what would help if Blue Shield tomorrow says we're going to roll this out internally and do this. Is that a blind spot for you guys or is that just validate further validation of what you're doing? Yeah. So because our our creation of our company came from a university research Mm -hmm. problem, we have 15 years of longitudinal data sets that we are using to train our algorithms, Mm -hmm. to train our, our, our models. And so, you know. 
a United or an Anthem can easily create their own solution, but to have that that depth of longitudinal data and, and actually have AI models that are uh, deeply trained on, on, on that longitudinal, that vast amount of data is what really the, the moat that we have is. Awesome. That's why these big conglomerates are partnering with us rather than building their own solution. Yeah, yeah, it would take them years to to catch up. What um, you know, going back to your time in the Navy, what do you think you learned during your time that has allowed you to grow your business in the way that you're growing it? Like what lessons did you take away that you're using today as an entrepreneur? Yeah, I mean there there's there's blind spots um that are that are there's everywhere of the business, but re- really, it comes down to one of the biggest things that I that I see is, you know, there's a lot of young entrepreneurs that I that I meet that they they keep saying, you know, we have this technology, we want to commercialize it, whereas the way I've thought about the companies that have started is, first think about the problem you want to solve, rather than how how you want to apply technology to that to solve it. And so um, really digging deep in what is the problem you're trying to solve, everything else gets built around that uh, that problem statement rather than saying you have a technology capability, what business problems can I solve with this technology problem? So, so that's, that's one of the first things. And then the other, um, blind spots is choosing your initial team um, and having complete trust in each other is one of the biggest, most rare um, aspects that take companies from idea stage to unicorn status, right? That, that bond between your initial founding team has to be so great that, that trust cannot be broken. How did you find your initial team? Yeah. Um, so my initial team that we have, uh, you know, the co-founding team, I went through a business school with them. We all did our international residency in Shanghai, China together. We, mm-hmm. we, we spent two years together understanding what each other's strengths and weaknesses are before we were like, all right, you know what? I, I trust to put my family's future in your hands, just same as the military. Is, is going into the battlefield together and saying, I trust that you're going to have my back. Um, and, and so my initial founding team at, at T-Care came from um, being dragged in the mud together for two years. Mm-hmm. For sure. I want to uh, ask you, was there something in that process that you messed up or that you could have done better that uh, you're thinking about, if you could go back in time? Um, you know, by, by the way, my founding team, they're all military veterans as well. That's awesome. So we're all, we're all teammates. So we've, we've, we've been dragged in the mud uh, um, various times um, <laughs> together. So, so we, we also understand it. Now, going back uh, to your question, uh, Cynthia. Yeah, um, if I had to go back, um, you know, if you if you've ever read Steve Blank's Lean, uh, Lean Startup uh, mm-hmm. book, it, it's all about 
building your company in iterative position in iterative stages. I would not have waited until our product was perfect before taking it out to the market. Um, I think you know, oftentimes, as product people, as technologists, as as innovators, we can be perfectionists and want to have the best product out in the field. Um, whereas, you know, it, it would have we could have achieved a bit more market share if we went to market earlier. Hmm. That's interesting. Where, when you're thinking about the future of of T care. Where where do you see you guys going in the next five to ten years? Where do you hope it goes? Yeah, so we've been purely focused as a enterprise facing uh, pro- both product and enterprise facing business model, right? Our users are within employees of the insurance companies, and we're not a consumer facing product. I do think that we are headed that way uh, eventually. Uh, and inevitably, we are going to have to be uh, providing a, a more of a turnkey solution for our clients. And so um, I think we're going to expand to a B2B to C type model. Mm-hmm. And I also see that we're going to add a service element. What, what I see right now is the, the elder care, senior care market um, is growing double digits year over year. The population of baby boomers is growing double digits year over year. And there's not a dominant player in the market that currently serves the elder care population. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of a greenfield out there, uh, a a land grab, especially with Biden's new infrastructure bill, Hmm. some of the uh, funding, the the trickle down funding that's coming to state government and, and uh, different Medicaid or Medicare insurance um, companies, um, there's going to be a very, very vast, uh, a, a pretty big market opportunity out there. Nice. And- Even just for me, I'm thinking I've got parents that are in their 70s and I'm already thinking like, what do I need to do? Because I'm in that gap generation. You know, mm. I've got kids that rely on me and then I've got aging parents that rely on me. And how how can I prepare myself to care for them? Because I don't know those answers. I don't even know where to turn. Yeah. 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 You're called the sandwich generation. Yep. <laughs> and, um, I didn't know there was a, a label for it. <laughs> there is. There is. Uh, your sandwich between child care and elder care. Wow. That's... And um, the challenges between those two can can actually be very similar while very different. Yeah. Um, you know. Elders in their in their later years, yeah. they become just like children. Um, one of the one of the very interesting pillars of our company is when we're looking at uh, product design and the the user journey flow. Uh, we're actually looking at taking expertise from childcare organizations that we've seen. So it's, it's very similar. Yeah, where can people find you online? Ali at tcare.ai. Yeah, tcare.ai is the website. Tcare.ai is is our domain. Buddy, I'm so glad we got to do this finally. Thanks for finally reading your email, by the way. I'm glad. (laughs) You're never going to let that go. (laughs) (laughs) Ali, it's uh, it's always a thrill. We got to catch up sometime and just uh, shoot the shit. But uh, thanks for coming on, man. Yeah, Josh, thanks for having me. It's always great. And uh, I'm sure I'm going to run into you again in, in person at some of the veteran events 
Somewhere, Somewhere someday. Yep, absolutely. Hey, everybody, you've been listening to the Veteran Founder Podcast on the Startup Radio Network. Listen every week, listen, learn, get shit done. We'll see you next week. You're listening to the Startup Radio Network. Listen, learn, launch. 10% of our gross revenue goes directly to women entrepreneurs in developing countries around the world through Kiva's microfinance program.